Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware in downtown Indianapolis. Get over to Leon Tailoring for that young person who graduated. Congratulations, by the way. And make sure they've got the clothes for that big job interview. Hey, the economy may be good, but you still got to dress for success. And Leon Tailoring, they can help your young person do that with a professional wardrobe and attire that they need. And so all those years of college and getting a degree do not go to waste. So Leon Tailoring, the perfect place to get your young professional off to that start in the world of work. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware in downtown Indianapolis. Well, although school's out for right now, we can still check in for education from time to time and education-related issues. And so joining us on the news line, actually in studio, is Tommy Reddix. He's with the Paramount School of Excellence. So, Tommy, thank you very much for being with us. We do appreciate it. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. Uh, so uh, what exactly do you folks do at Paramount? And you're not the movie people. We are not the movie people. You know, we work hard to teach kids and really move kids where they need to be, whether they're below grade level or at grade level, making sure that we've got positive outcomes for them. Uh, we operate three schools brick and mortar style on the near east side of indianapolis and we also have a virtual school paramount online academy which opened up after the pandemic really mid-pandemic and is about to start its second full year of school uh, so how have things been in the, in the virtual school world these days virtual school world's been very dynamic uh, pre-pandemic there there were a lot of virtual schools around the state uh, the, the leader in the state was indiana connections academy serving thousands of students but coming out of the pandemic uh, and starting this virtual school, we began the year last year with about 140, 150 students. And mid-year, we had about 400 students. And so the pandemic, I think, last year kind of reared its head during the fall. And we had a lot of families say, whoa, I'm not sure we're ready to go back and flooded the gates a little bit for us. And so we've seen just kind of the yo-yo the effect of family insecurity, um, pushing people in and out of that atmosphere. Um, how easy uh, or hard has it been to sort of handle uh, that, that sort of student population logistically speaking? Like I said, now, first of all, everybody's enrolled, then they're not enrolled, then they're enrolled again, then they're on again, they're off again. At, at this point, it's kind of the nature of the business. You know, we're, we're always looking for talent and, and teacher talent, as, as you know, there's a teacher shortage out there. And so finding enough talent to fit the need is just a constant quest. And so, you know, we work really hard at making sure we've got licensed teachers that are able-bodied and, and willing to go into that space and work with kids. And, and we've done a really good job of that. So we have had to shift staff as the school year went on, adding staff, making sure we can accommodate the amount of families we need. And, and I think that's a really important factor when you're talking virtual because a lot of virtual schools will just put tons of kids per teacher you could have 50 60 70 kids per teacher and you lose your quality of instruction when your ratios go that high and so we work really hard to keep our ratios at 25 to 1 so it mirrors a regular classroom and we could still have individualized instruction in a virtual lane yeah because i was going to ask you about that because obviously in a physical classroom 25 30 students is usually about the most that you can get with virtual, you can have literally you know, sort of thousands of children sort of all over the world in 8 million different time zones. Right. And you kind of named the ethical problem with virtual in the United States, maybe virtual anywhere, is when you start adding more students than you could do in a physical setting, you're, you're kind of breaking down a mold that's been proven and tried and tested. Like if you're a teacher in a regular brick and mortar classroom and you're serving 25 to 30 students and we've realized when we go any higher than that, we're losing our effectiveness. That teacher is with those kids all day. They're helping them stay on task. They're really managing the process. And in a virtual setting, you have less control over what's happening in the home with that child. So when you add more students, it's exponentially harder to have high engagement and high outcomes. And also the other thing too I noticed too uh, with a virtual school is it's that sort of that one on one that that you kind of miss unless you unless you do a Zoom and you, you go into a breakout room but you're counting on first of all you count on people to have technology to be, to begin with 
and in lower income and more economically challenged homes, I know that's uh, been a big issue as well. Yeah, I mean, dealing with technologies is certainly an issue, and tech literacy also. We, we have a lot of students, especially in our more high-density, high-poverty areas, who might not have the technical savvy to succeed on a digital platform. And so building up that technological literacy so you can actually navigate the platform is really important. And you do need, in a virtual setting, you need a teacher who's going to be live with that student multiple times during a day. It can't be just, hey, log in, do your work, we'll make sure you're good, life's going to be great. Yeah, uh, that's that's challenging. Our guest on the program today is Tommy Reddix. He is the head of Paramount Schools of Excellence. They have three three little three three physical schools on the east side of Indianapolis, but also they operate a virtual school. They've been operating a virtual school since the pandemic. And so we're just kind of talking about some of the challenges and issues and some of the successes that virtual schools have had. How do you guys keep track of attendance? I know that was a big issue a couple years ago with one of the virtual schools sort of maybe sort of fudging their attendance numbers. People wanted money back and the whole nine yards. I'm sure that didn't help the, the image of virtual schools. Oh, no. I, I would say, you know, the ghost kid conundrum is what I call it. When you have ghost students and you're just happily keeping them on your roster, but they're not really there, they're not really active, and you're asking the state to pay you for that attendance, you've you've crossed an ethical bound boundary there. And for us, you know, we have to see that student. They have to be in a live lesson. We have to see them on the screen to count them as attending. And if we don't have them in attendance for more than two weeks, then we're going to remove them from our rosters. And so it's it's trying to stay on the moral high ground of that debate is really challenging. And I think it's something that parents should look for when, when they're out there and they think, hey, I, coming out of the pandemic, suddenly I find myself working at home. Um, or if you're a family before the pandemic that just believed in, in home-based education and you're looking for that right solution, I think looking for a school that's going to really stay on top of attendance and, and engage you in a live way, I think is a real difference maker in the field. Um, how do you uh, keep track of uh, attendance in the virtual school setting? Quite literally, if you're there present on the screen, we mark you as in attendance for the day. And if you're not on the screen, we have no proof that you're there interacting with us. And so we need to see you physically in order to count you as attendance. So I couldn't just make like a cutout of myself and just set it in front of my, my, uh, my laptop camera and just sort of wave and do a little song and dance every once in a while. I have to actually physically be there. You have to be there. You have to be engaging in, in the live lessons. And we do two live lessons daily which means there's a morning live lesson and an afternoon live lesson. And then in between that, our teachers can monitor your work in the curriculum that we use. So they can see the active work going on. They can chime in. They can send you into a chat, ask you to maybe do your problem over again. And so the continuity there between the live lessons and then monitoring your work is pretty solid. How do, how do, how do teachers monitor your, their work? It, there's some great software out there. We've come a long way. If, if there's any like applause we can give to the pandemic, is it has forced us to pivot and really look at some of these tools that were out there, but we were saying, yeah, we don't need that because we're good doing it the old way. I think we have found some really great tools that, you know, even though I say we're using them in a virtual space, we use a lot of these digital tools now in the classroom. So students are building up their technological literacy. Teachers are able to actively monitor their progress, and we can produce reports. We can see from a data-driven perspective how students are doing better, large in part because the pandemic forced us to look at how we can monitor students when we're not with them. Our guest on the program today is Tommy Reddick. Tommy is the head of Paramount Schools of Excellence. They operate three physical schools, but also a virtual school uh, here in Indianapolis. And so we're going to talk about some of the challenges and issues that virtual schools uh, have had. Uh, when I teach Tommy, uh, I've taught at the University of Indianapolis, Ivy Tech, and a couple other places, and I had to go virtual during the pandemic. <clears throat> For me as an, as an instructor, professor, I always did much better just sort of physically, like you and I just you know three, four feet apart, 
I can see my students. I can read their body language. Are they, are you getting it? Are you not getting it? The whole nine yards. How has it been uh, for teachers to make that adjustment into virtual learning? It's a great question because uh, it's, a, it's a different style of teaching. As you know, you've been through it. Uh, you're going through the paces with more of a sense of uh, autonomy and trust in knowing that the package that you're putting out there is actually hitting and producing results. And so I think it takes, it takes a different style of teacher to operate in that space who wants to be um, more of a coach, more of someone who digs in and dives deep and establishes uh, additional relationships with students and families. So you can go find out, did, did I impact this lesson? Is the student really struggling? If they are, I need to get on the phone and I need to work with them. Uh, it's, it's totally different than the immediate feedback you would get in a classroom. And coincidentally, we're finding that not every classroom teacher is cut out for virtual instruction. Uh, it's, it's kind of a different mindset and it's a different kind of individual that will seek that out and find comfort in it and, and approach that the right way. And so it's really not a plug and play field. Uh, and it's something that we vet for pretty heavily in, in the interview process, but it's, it's certainly a, a very different process. Are there some classes that tend to work better virtually than other classes? You know what? Uh, mathematics tends to be the hardest. I would say that, you know, language arts and writing instruction tends to be slightly easier. And, you know, we're always hovering around the big two in reading and mathematics. Uh, but mathematics is one of those fields to where it's, it's pattern memory. And you're going to do building blocks of pattern memory in mathematics. And so if you get a problem wrong and you don't get the feedback that there's a better way to do that problem and you continue to replicate that mistake, you've put that mistake into pattern memory. And that can continue to slow down your progress mathematically. And so we're definitely finding that the there is harder. The second thing I would say is lower elementary instruction. Teaching a child to read virtually takes a lot of help. Tell me, go into that a little bit more if you could. Sure. You can't just assume a student's going to understand how to make sounds and, and how to read letters on a page when you're not right there with them. And so there are tools that we can use to help that instruction. But if you're a, a parent of a kindergarten child and you're wanting to get them to a point of high literacy, the parent needs to be an active, engaged part of that learning process. And so we're very upfront about that. If you want to be an early elementary school in a virtual setting, the parent needs to be a very active player. Because while we've got an amazing coach on the other side of that screen, we need the parent to be helping deliver that instruction and helping deliver some of those those read-alouds and, and read-alongs. How, how have you folks found parental engagement? Because I know that, that was always an issue uh, in just the regular brick-and-mortar schools. And I always kind of jokingly say there, there are some parents who will move heaven earth to help educate their kids. There are other parents, on the other hand, that you could have virtual school. You, you literally have class in their living room, and they still wouldn't show up. I think the problem persists, it especially persists in areas where parents uh, have a lot on their hands. You know, parents that are, are struggling to make ends meet and have to work multiple jobs and really can't be present but are choosing a virtual option. That's really a challenge because they're trusting their child to be an autonomous learner in a, in a digital setting from home. Uh, we, we coach parents against that choice. Quite honestly, it's like if, if you're not able to be there and help your child and make sure that the education is taking place, we might not be the best option for you in a virtual sense. Uh, so we really want parents to be active participants. And if you can't be there, we really want you to come to a brick and mortar school so you can have that teacher coach be with you during the entire process and make sure that the learning's maximized. Uh, how do you, uh, does, the, does, the, does the virtual school supplement the brick and mortar school? Does the brick and mortar school supplement the virtual school or do they just sort of work together or do they work together in tandem? All of our schools are independent. 
what we do is we have an educational system that we've codified. And so our, our system's tried and true. It does really great things for kids. Our educational outcomes are high. But uh, you can't kind of flip-flop and say, you know what, today I want to go virtual. And so we're just going to shift over there. If you do that, you have to unenroll from your school and enroll into the virtual school. And there's no guarantee you get to come back because your seat could backfill and there wouldn't be space there in the grade that you left. And so um, while, while there can be some shifting and moving, parents would have to make a choice that this could be very permanent. Tommy Reddick's with us on the program for a few more minutes. He's the head of Paramount Schools of Excellence. They uh, have three brick-and-mortar schools and also virtual schools. So we're talking more about the virtual school component today uh, on the program. Uh, Tom, I want to circle back. Uh, I'll ask you a few minutes ago about uh, are some classes a little bit more difficult to, to do than others? You said mathematics. How do you guys do math, science, in the lab type stuff? Or, well, do, or do you? We have very little lab-based instruction. We're a kindergarten through eighth grade structure, so we don't have the high school setting. And so when you get into middle school, if it's going to be a laboratory environment, robotics would be a great example of where you really need that hands-on instruction. Our parents in the virtual space can come and participate in the club level and our brick-and-mortar schools. That's one of the advantages of having both, is that, yes, you don't need to unenroll from your school to go uh, support extracurricular activities in the other schools. And so that that works very plug-and-play. But other than that, it's a real high focus on traditional math, English, language, arts, science, history, like you would see in, in elementary school. So how do you guys do recess? Because I know the kids need a break, and, and teachers need a break, too. Now, recess is a critical component. Um, not only recess, but like your specials or extended core classes like music, art, and PE, Spanish, um, those kinds of things. We, we implement all of those in the virtual setting. In recess, we call it recess, but it's, it's an hour block where students get to unpack, unwind, and we encourage play. We encourage families to let them go outside, run it off a little bit. You know, if you've got a swing set in your backyard, utilize it. So we, we do want that mental break so it's not so stressful because we, we have very high rigor in our virtual instruction process. So the students are expected to be on task working their way through and they do need those those brain breaks. How do you make sure uh, kids are working as opposed to somebody like me who's playing SimCity 2000? Well, what we can do, we've got a couple cool pieces of software that will allow you to go certain places on your technology and it won't allow you to go to certain places and then we can directly monitor what's happening on your technology as, as a school and, and a lot of the great virtual schools out there do this they will provide the technology they'll provide the Wi-Fi if you need it and so in doing that we can put software packages on that laptop that ensure students can't go certain places and if they do the teacher will get an alert and they can say hey Johnny get right back on it I, I see you're playing a game here jump back over let's get you back in that math lesson. So we do have that immediate feedback for them. Tommy Reddick's with us for a few minutes on the program today. Uh, what is What would you say is, a, is the biggest challenge versus the biggest uh, or the easiest thing when it comes to virtual learning, if that, that question makes sense? The easiest thing for virtual learning. Uh, you know, I, I think I would put it back in the parent's lap. Um, I think you you know it and you've mentioned it and, and your experience as a teacher that you understand, I think, in-person instruction for you, for me, it's my preference. I think, you know, when, when we're in person, we can really understand and contextualize the the education delivery and the impact on, on the student. Um, but unfortunately, and especially through the pandemic, it's not every family's choice. There are some families who, whether it's logistics or personal choice or want their child in a smaller environment, make the choice to, to be served in a virtual environment. And so in that case, 
we have to decide as an organization, are we going to say goodbye to those families and not provide the service for them? Or do we want to provide a service so we can tell our families that we've kind of diversified the portfolio and and are going to try to deliver this at the highest point? And so, you know, the, the ease of how that goes, the easiest thing to do is when you've got a family who says, this is who and how we are, that suddenly you've got the buy-in, you've got the support, and and it's much easier for us at that point to deliver instruction to a willing able-bodied participant. In terms of curricular ease, there there is no um, smoking gun or there is no, you know, perfect secret sauce to say, oh no, if you deliver, you know, literacy instruction a certain way, things get really smooth and really easy. I, I think education is a very challenging field overall. And there, there's no simple, perfect thing in a classroom, let alone a virtual classroom that, you know, it's more about the focus and the hard work to make sure that we're staying high fidelity, high engagement through the process. As we get to wrap up our conversation, if someone is thinking about uh, perhaps maybe sending their kid to, be to you know, Paramount Virtual School or another type of virtual school learning, what are the you know, two, three things that they should know before they enroll? Or, or at least, or at least, think about pursuing an education in a virtual environment. Yeah, I think it's a it's a critical question, and you know, I I know there's there's upwards of ten thousand families being served digitally in the state of Indiana, and and so you know, fifteen to twenty thousand students being served, and you know, I think it's real easy to to think as a parent, you know, I'm going to make this choice for my child, and um, say, oh, here's the online school, I'm going to send my child there. How do you vet? an online school, you know, that's, that's more of a critical question. And I think post pandemic is something that maybe we need to start asking more and more. And, you know, what's the enrollment of the school? How many students per teacher? Is my child going to get individual instruction or is my child one of a hundred who is just expected to autonomously navigate a system? How much support am I going to get if I don't understand how to log into the system? If I don't understand how to navigate the curriculum for my child, if my child's in lower elementary school, how much support am I going to get as a parent to help that navigation? Because that's going to be tricky. And I think the last one, which I mentioned earlier, is am I home enough to facilitate this experience and help my child? And if I'm not, am I making the right decision for my child? All right. Well, our guest on the program today has been Tommy Reddix. Uh, he is the head of Paramount Schools of Excellence, uh, the three brick-and-mortar schools here in Indianapolis, but also a virtual school as well. So we've been talking today about just some of the challenges and successes that have been a, that have accompanied like a kid getting a virtual education. So, Tommy, my friend, thank you very much for being with us. Nothing but the best of luck to you folks. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.